Father, it is indeed our prayer that uh, in a time where everything is uh, seems like it's rapidly changing, in a time where we have been forced to face challenges that most of us have never had to face before, in a time of great instability, it is so important for us to anchor ourselves in you. As we heard in the psalm, you are our fortress and you are our shield, you are our stronghold, you are our rock. And it is that reality that you are the anchor for our soul, that when the waves come, they'll sustain us. It is also through the word that we will hear tonight that we will once again be strengthened and faith will be grown. Do that now, I pray, as we prepare to hear your word. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and take a seat. So the, uh, the question on the docket this evening, for me anyway, as I uh, went through the text that we'll read in just a bit, the question is, who are you? Or maybe, I mean, you could, I could say this like, hey, who do you think you are? And depending on the tone of voice with which I ask that question, you can either respond uh, sort of thoughtfully and honestly. You know, if I was to say, who do you think you are? You know, really inquisitively, then you might give a sincere response. All the, on the other hand, if I was to come up to you and say, who do you think you are? Well, then you might be tempted to respond differently. But the question, who are you? And the answer to that question, I think, has maybe never been as complex as it is right now in our culture. In our time, there seems to be no shortage of answers that one might give in response to this question. Theoretically, one could say, and this is just an imaginary person, one could say, I am a cisgender, African-American male, married father of two who does financial analysis for Goldman Sachs. I root for the Jets, the Clippers, and the Orioles. What a sad, sad man he would be from a sports perspective. I prefer craft beer to domestic beer. I vote libertarian. I do CrossFit, listen to country music passionately, and in my spare time, I play badminton better than anyone I know. And all of these facts stated by this hypothetical man I've just introduced you to are, are ways that people today tend to describe themselves. We're very multifaceted in our identity. Though usually they, to be fair, maybe don't say all those things at once. And especially now, probably try and hide the fact that they're a Clippers fan. But what do you say? Who are you? I mean, really... Who are you? Uh, in Jesus' day, the answer to that question wasn't nearly as complex, especially for the religious leaders of Jerusalem that Jesus encounters uh, in his last week of ministry. 
In fact, they primarily just identified themselves as, well, with one overarching identity. I, I'm a servant of God. I'm a good Jewish person. As a matter of fact, if anything, these guys saw themselves as the gatekeepers. They were the ones who were guarding true doctrine. And they were quite proud of it. They were quite proud of their status. These Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, etc., etc. And then Jesus shows up and, well, he threatens to upend their whole gig. In other words, he, he, he really, what he does in his last week of ministry is he threatens the very core of how they identify. The very core of who they thought they were. And what we're going to see play out in our text today is what happens when, when Jesus threatens one's identity or power or status and sort of the natural response to it. So with that being said, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 21 verses 23 through 32, it reads like this. And when Jesus, he, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, Well, uh, if we say it's from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John is a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you, for John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. End of reading. So the question again, based on this passage, what happens? When Jesus threatens one's identity. And how might somebody respond to that? Well, I suppose you could do what the Pharisees do in this text at the very beginning. And that is you can, you can indeed assert your own authority in response to his. That's certainly what we see in the very question they're asking him. Now, just to bring you up to speed contextually uh, in this passage, what has just happened right before is Jesus has busted into the temple. He has overturned their tables. He has started healing people, and he is now preaching from their pulpit in their temple. They have every reason to want to ask him, who do you think you are? 
By what authority are you doing this? Are you taking over our show? And to be honest, that's sort of the natural response I think all people have when their sense of identity is threatened by anything or by anyone. Confronted with the idea that someone has the right to tell you what you do and how to live, or at the very least threatens to expose the fact that you haven't lived in the way that you say you have, yeah, it's going to result in defensiveness. Who do you think you are, they say to him. Tell us by what authority you think you can come take over this temple. I can't help but think of the character Judah Rosenthal in this, the movie Crimes and Misdemeanors. In the film, Martin Landau plays Judah, a very successful New York doctor, well-known, beloved in his community. So beloved, in fact, that he is showered with awards for philanthropy and for all of his good work in the medical profession. All sorts of praise comes in from the upper echelons of society. Nobody has a bad word to say about the man. Well, nobody except the mistress that he has been secretly having an affair with for quite some time. She has a few bad words to say about him because, frankly, she's sick and tired of him stringing her along, promising that he's going to leave his wife one day, not doing it, and so she's finally had it. She's going to expose him. She's going to tell the world about what he's doing behind his wife's back, that he's not the sainted man that they all think he is. Well, Judah just can't allow that to happen. I mean, he just, he just can't. He's got too much on the line. His whole life is built on his wonderful reputation. And so like our religious leaders in our narrative, there's too much at stake for that to happen. And so Judah will assert his authority in, frankly, the most extreme way by having his mistress killed. Indeed, the religious leaders Jesus speaks to now who question him will eventually do the same with him. But listen, I mean, one does not have to deny that Jesus is the Christ like they did in order to fall into this trap. It's frankly, in fact, one could be a wonderfully devout Christian and find themselves pushing back against Jesus' authority in their lives all the time. I mean, this basically happens any time that we hear what the Word of God says or how we should live from the Word of God. And instead of doing it, instead of following it, instead of changing, we basically go shh and push it down, push it away, and continue on our merry way doing something we know is not in accord with His will. But in the end, it won't work. You can only push it down for so long. You can only ignore it for so long. You are human. He is God. You are creature. He is creator. And so just as the religious teachers of Jesus' day could not win, because Jesus eventually vindicated himself at his resurrection and ascension, so too we cannot win if we choose this tack in a relationship with God. To assert our own authority, our own position, our own status, our own identity. It's just not going to work. 
Well, then there is a second option that you can move to that our religious leaders do, and, uh, and that is you can seek to find some sort of mushy middle ground. You see that really in verses 24 through 27. After Jesus, uh, Jesus basically sets a trap for them. There's no easier way of saying it. It's just he sets a trap for them. He says, okay, you want to know what, what authority I do what I do? I got a question for you. Um, John, John's baptism. From heaven, from man, what do you say? Well, this is a real, this is a real tricky situation. Because they're on record as being against John the Baptist. They didn't like him. They didn't like him for the same reason they don't like Jesus, because he was stealing their show. And people were trusting in what he was doing, and they were going to him to be baptized for the sake of repentance. They didn't like him. And they pushed against him. So you would think that they would just simply answer Jesus. He's from man. He's just a, he's just a mere man. He wasn't anything special. God didn't send him. Ah, but they know. They know by this time the crowd would be against that entirely. We're told they know the crowd sees John by this time as a prophet, probably a martyr prophet because John has been killed by the state. They hated the state. So the crowd's naturally on John's side. And so they're, they're in a real pickle. What are they going to do? Either, either answer is going to get them in trouble. So they, they give the most mushy middle compromise answer, political answer ever. We just don't know. We don't know where John is from. We're, we just don't have an opinion on the matter. And they, of course, have an opinion on the matter. But they didn't want to face the consequences of their perspective. And many, many are tempted in the same sort of way to be wishy-washy in their response to Jesus when he comes questioning where they stand not wanting to adopt especially some of the unpopular opinions that Jesus holds to. One can instead of outright fight back against him, simply seek to minimize or downplay those uncomfortable bits associated with Christ and his Christians. But Jesus won't have that either. He just won't. He just won't have it. Now, I mean, there's no middle ground when it comes to him, when it comes to who he is. Now, don't get me wrong here. There can be nuanced middle ground positions about all sorts of things in life. Politics, sure. Nuance away. Sports, sure. Nuance away. Fine. Career decisions, fine, 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 no problem. And then I can go on and on. But when it comes to Jesus, in the final analysis, one is forced to say he either is who he said he is, that he's a liar, or his, at least his followers are, or that he was crazy, or his followers were. There's really not much more of an option for us. We cannot try and find the mushy middle when it comes to who Jesus is. Reminds me, a little while back on uh, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, I don't know if any of you guys watched that, wonderful program put out by Jerry Seinfeld now on Netflix. Uh, in one particular episode of the show, uh, Jerry has as his guest my favorite comedian in the world, which is Norm MacDonald. So 
Of course, I've watched it approximately 38 times or so. And uh, at one part in the episode, McDonald and Seinfeld are sitting at a table in a diner when McDonald says to Seinfeld, very sincerely, he meant it, well, you don't have a child, Jerry, so you don't have to worry. And just then, Seinfeld interrupts him and says, I don't have a child? And Norm says, no. He says, Seinfeld says, I have three. And Norm says, do you have daughters? He says, I have two sons and a daughter. And Norm sort of sits back a little surprised and then says, well, I guess we're just going to have to agree to disagree. Now, of course, he's saying that to be funny in response to Seinfeld, because that's not something you can agree to disagree about. Either he has kids or he doesn't have kids. And it's sort of the same thing, like there's no agreeing to disagree about who Jesus is. Like, well, okay, I know you're saying that you're God incarnate and God in the flesh. Agree to disagree. No, it's not an option. There's no mush, there's no middle. He either is or he isn't. Well, okay. We've determined so far that responding to Jesus' threat to our authority by asserting our own or trying to find some sort of compromise won't work. So then what's left? What's left for us? Well, to answer that question, Jesus provides us with a tiny little parable. In the parable, he pictures two sons being asked by their father to go out and work in the field. The first son says, no. Now, you always have to remember when this was spoken in the first century. A son does not say to his father, no. It just doesn't happen. It's the height of arrogance. It's a tremendous insult that he would not do it. It really was a big deal. But what do you know, eventually, that boy who said no in the highest form of rebellion to his father has a change of heart and eventually goes out and works in the field. The second boy immediately says, you betcha, Dad. I won't, put, I won't keep on playing Call of Duty anymore. I'm going to go out there and get to work. And then after his father leaves, he proceeds to continue playing Call of Duty for another five hours while eating multiple bags of Funyuns and downing Mountain Dew. Well, which one did the will of his father? The answer is obvious. The one who changed his mind, got out in the field, did the work according to what his father had asked him. What's the point Jesus is making? Even if you started off in the wrong direction, even if initially you rejected me, you can still repent. In fact, it maybe a better way to say you can be repented. You can have your mind changed about me. Indeed, the hope for us as Christians, as we go out to the world, part of it is we believe that people can have their minds changed about Jesus Christ. That is, after all, the literal word 
uh, literal meaning of the word repent. It means to have your mind changed. So rather than one continuing to assert their own authority to puff up their chest against Jesus as he challenges them, or rather than try and find the compromise, agree to disagree position, there is still time to simply acknowledge one is wrong and to come to Jesus now to ask for the forgiveness of sins and to be guaranteed to have it. It really doesn't matter how long it takes somebody. The Father is ready and willing to welcome anyone with open arms. Even if one has run away their whole life, the Father will happily declare to that one that they have done his will perfectly in his sight if they have changed their minds about him. Thus Jesus says, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you religious leaders. For John came to, the, came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. The tax collectors, those who had been traitors to their people and extorted money on behalf of a foreign, invading, occupying empire, and prostitutes, those who had sold their very bodies sexually for money, heard the message of God through John, and they changed their minds. They received what he said. The result, Jesus says, is they're going to heaven. The people that you despise the most, they're going before you. Simply because they changed their mind about me. I've seen this sort of thing play out many times in my life, folks. I mean, I've seen it happen. I've seen people's minds be changed right in front of my eyeballs. I mean, I've seen the whole tone of their voice change as we've conversed. I've seen the cadence of their voice. I've seen the look on their face. Everything, I've seen it happen. I've seen the Spirit just slowly start to transform somebody's thought about Jesus and suddenly begin to change their mind. My favorite example of this happened with my friend Tony years ago, who frankly saw it as sort of a, a bit of a fun sport of his whenever he met a young Christian. He thought it was fun to challenge them. He thought it was fun to kind of make them doubt their faith. And so he'd bring up some, you know, some real doozies to try and get people really freaked out who had never really encountered questions about the faith before, because there are many. You know, he'd ask them, like, well, what, what, is your, what does the Bible say about aliens? What does the Bible say about dinosaurs? Why doesn't, why doesn't the Bible even talk about dinosaurs? And, you know, how do we make a, you know, is the Bible, right? you know, is, the, is creation only 10,000 years old or younger? I mean, you know, you bring up all these kinds of things that, frankly, were a little stereotypical. And, and frankly, you can respond to these questions pretty easily. They're not terribly hard objections. But if you've never been exposed to them, they could trip you up, and he used to enjoy tripping people up. But I remember one night just having this chance to sit down with him for a few hours. And all of his questions initially were challenges. They were, you know, just jabs, jab, 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 trying to, trying to jab at the faith. And I was just doing my best to kind of give responses as I could. And I just noticed, I noticed... For about an hour, the tone of his questions changed. 
And he was actually starting to try and learn. Like he actually wanted to try and understand what Christianity was about. And, and I just knew it. I knew it by the time we were done. That faith had been kindled. I knew it. I saw it. He had been repented by the word that was presented to him. God had changed his mind. He is one of many, 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 many people on earth today that have had that experience. And one of vastly more that have had that same experience throughout all of history. Sadly, this was not the case with the religious establishment of Jesus' day. They knew in their heart of hearts that John the Baptist was the real deal, and they most certainly knew that Jesus was the real deal too. In fact, I believe that Jesus bringing up John's baptism actually does provide a subtle answer to their question about which authority he had sent him to do all he had done. After all, they were all well aware of what happened at John's baptism when Jesus went down into those sin-filled waters that John was baptizing people in. For the first and only time out of the myriad numbers of people who were baptized in that Jordan River from John, when Jesus goes in, something different happens. The Spirit descends as a dove. The Father speaks from heaven. What does he say? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. At that moment, Jesus is declared to the whole world, including the religious establishment that challenge him now, by the very voice of the Father from heaven, that he alone. God takes ultimate pleasure in That he alone is fit to be the substitute for this world. At that moment, Jesus is actually repenting on the world's behalf. And the Father is well pleased with his repentance. Our repentance is only halfway at best most of the time. All the time. There's always mixed motives in our repentance. But never so with Jesus. Though he doesn't have to repent of anything himself. He does have to repent for everything we have done wrong. In Jesus bringing up this baptism of John's, he is subtly telling the crowds, stop fighting me. Receive me. I'm the one that the Father has authoritatively given as your substitute. And yet Jesus declares sadly, even when you saw it, you didn't afterward change your minds and believe. Yes, it is true. I'm wrapping up right now. It is true. The vast majority of the religious leaders that Jesus interacted with, from what we know, do not change their mind and believe in him. That's true. But you know what gives me hope for every person on planet Earth still? Is that we know some did. Some, like Nicodemus, saw in Christ the Savior they needed and were repented. Some, like the thief on the cross, saw in Christ the Savior they needed and were repentant. What gives me hope is that just like them, you who are here tonight, you who are watching online, whether you've already had your mind changed or not, or perhaps are having your mind changed for the first time, 
And indeed, rest assured that he accepts and forgives those who have even the smallest amount of faith in him, even now. And so the ultimate answer to how we should respond when God attacks whatever identities we've built for ourselves is not to assert our authority. And it's not to try and find some way, some middle ground, but no. It's to repent and believe and know that he has won everything necessary for us to live. Father, I pray that you would do just that in our lives again and again and again and again. Because each and every day, we struggle and we battle and we assert our own authority. We are simultaneously saint and sinner. And so the sinner wants to raise his ugly head up and do what, what he or she wants in us. And yet we are saint. And the saint reminds us of our baptism and what we've been given by you. Help us go back to that identity and make that primarily our identity each and every day. We pray in Jesus' name. You taught us to pray with one voice. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. 